Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to, I think it was our very first 10 a.m. service as a church. Hopefully you guys are all adjusting. I know some who went earlier like getting out of here earlier, and some who like later service like sleeping in more. I know you're a mom, so you're, not, you're probably rarely sleeping late. The title of this morning's message is The Name Above All Names. We're continuing on this morning in our series, The Summer in Psalms, where each of your pastors is bringing on Sunday, throughout the summer months, uh, one of their favorite psalms. Sam launched a series last Sunday in Psalm 1. Today we're going to be taking a deep dive into Psalm 8. I believe in our short existence as Emmanuel Fellowship Church, your pastors have been trying to convey a central theme to our preaching and teaching, in essence, to build a solid biblical foundation for which all Scripture rests. We believe that there's one common thread that runs throughout, from Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22, and that thread throughout God's story from beginning to end is God's plan of redemption is seen through His Son, Jesus Christ. All of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, points to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's no different in the Psalms. You're going to see once again how another Old Testament biblical text points us to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to Psalm 8. And if you don't, you'll see some on the floor at the end of the aisles. Just go ahead and grab one of those or have one passed. And while you're turning to Psalm 8, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us here this morning. We thank you that you say we're two or more gathered in your name, that you're there in their midst. And so we acknowledge your presence with us, and we're so thankful, Lord, that we have the opportunity and the freedom to meet with you every Sunday morning. So, Father, we pray through your Holy Spirit that your word would go forth and that our hearts and minds would be opened to what it is that you want to speak into our lives today, that, that you would be elevated, that your name would be exalted in our words, in our minds, in our hearts, in our very lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Psalm 8, verses 1 to 9. For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. The Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. So to start out this morning, I want to give you a brief overview of the first eight psalms. Psalm 8 concludes the first segment of Book 1, which consists of 41 psalms. Psalm 1 opens with a portrayal of the ideal human as David contrasts the righteous with the wicked. Psalm 8 returns to this theme of the dignity, honor, and dominion given to humanity. The reader leaves Psalms 3-7 through in the world of enemies, wicked people, and distorted justice for an image of the world as God originally created it. Psalm 8 celebrates God's magnificent glory as revealed in his creation, the dignity and honor given to humanity, and the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. 
The psalm is titled for the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. The psalm is intended for the choir director, our chief musician, the one who would be leading God's people in worship through song, and for us that would be meant for Chris. It is not absolutely clear what the meaning of the word Giddeth is. Commentators had several suggestions that could apply, all of which leads us to an important conclusion about this psalm. Here it appears to be referring to a musical instrument such as a lyre in which the chief musician is to accompany the vocalist and the singing of the psalm. Some think it refers to the town of Gath and may refer to a tune commonly sung there. Or a song, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, in which, whose house the ark rested for a time. Amazingly, he had Noah's ark parked in his driveway for months. Okay, it wasn't that ark. It was the ark of the covenant. One commentator believed it to be a song sung by David over Goliath of Gath as he lay dead in the field. That's pretty cool to think about. Others trace the Hebrew root of the word gat as referring to a wine press, believing it to be a song sung by those harvesting and treading grapes. Regardless, in every one of these situations that's proposed by the various scholars, this is to be looked at as a hymn of joy and delight. Charles Spurgeon calls this psalm the song of the astronomer. And I thought that was pretty cool, too. He sees the psalmist basically one who is lifting his eyes to the stars and amazed in what his God has made. King David is seen as the author. So in verse 1, the psalm begins, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And first, I want you to notice that this psalm begins in verse 8 and, and 1 and ends in verse 8 with the same declaration of praise at the magnificence of God the majesty of God, the greatness of our God. In repeating his declaration, David wants his readers and those who worship through this psalm to not be mistaken or misled. Our God is exalted above all that he has made. Secondly, I want you to notice how in the phrase, Lord, our Lord, the first Lord, is in all caps. Thus, the writer is identifying two different names for God here. The Lord in all caps is the Hebrew Yahweh, the covenant name given to the Israelites, that God revealed to Moses as he stood in his presence before the burning bush. When God instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh, Moses asked him, when Pharaoh asked, who should I say ascended me? And God replies, I am who I am. Tell him I am has sent you. Yahweh, the name that expresses character as the eternal, sovereign, and powerful God who is dependable and faithful to his people. And if you remember, Jesus applied this name to himself. When he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. In doing so, he claimed to be God at the risk of being stoned for blasphemy. And the second Lord in this, which is not in all caps, is the Hebrew Adonai, which is translated king, ruler, master. And adding the R there speaks to how God desires a personal relationship with people. Yahweh, our Adonai. How magnificent and majestic is your name throughout all the earth. David is declaring in praise the revealed radiant splendor of God. He is marveling at God's glory, greatness, and goodness. You have covered the heavens with your glory, referring to the entire universe, everything that God has made. All that can be seen reveals just how magnificent our God is. 
Even in the earth's magnificence that in so many ways can be witnessed by the human eye, it's not enough to measure the glory and excellence of God. It's as if the heavens, the far reaches of the galaxy, are not even enough to contain His glory or fully reveal His magnificence. What is even more incredible about this is this is the God we meet with on Sundays. This is the God that you meet with when you open your Bibles and pray. This is the God who walks with you throughout every day of your life and speaks to you and works personally in your life. How amazing and incredible is that? This is the God, David declares, is worthy of all praise. Let's go on in Psalm uh, verse 2, Psalm 8 verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. David finds a strange way to continue to proclaim the glory and magnificence of God, moving from the glory of the heavens to the mouths of infants and nursing babies. I believe this is true of nursing babies and infants and of the child still in the womb. David penned in Psalm 139, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This speaks of God's beautiful artistry, which is not dependent on a person's health, our mental capacity, our intelligence, our physical capabilities. It's not dependent on the person's future skills or abilities or talent. Every child in the womb, every nursing baby, every infant, every special need child is fearfully and wonderfully made. Made in God's image, given glory and honor, and glorifies God through their existence. The parents who have special needs children, God glorifies himself through your child. I remember when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what caused this man to be born blind? Was it the sin of his parents or was it his sin? Jesus responded, neither. This man was born blind in order that God's glory would be on display. You know, I often stand in the back during worship and Ellen and Tanya, child Anne, often brings me to tears as I see her standing during worship with a huge smile on her face, moving to the beat of the music, singing and raising her hands in worship. And parents, believe me, God glorifies himself through you as you face the challenges of laying your life down and sacrifice to love, care for, and raise your special needs child. John Piper, as he speaks on this verse in Psalm 8, calls it God's peculiar majesty. You and your child are part of God's peculiar majesty. Here in Psalm 8, David speaks of infants and nursing babies who are so small, dependent, needy, and helpless. Through them, God establishes a stronghold. And, and I've got a picture that should be coming up here of the newest member of the Donahue clan. Ephraim Christopher Donahue. Now, I may be biased, but isn't he precious? And God's declaring in this psalm that through ones like this, that he develops strongholds and, and praise that silences the enemies of God. Maybe in part, David is speaking of the glory and wonder and beauty of childbirth. I know that when I witnessed my sons being born or got to hold one of my grandsons for the first time, I felt like I was touching the majesty of God. Ephraim is totally dependent on Maddie and Stephen for his existence and for his happiness, and yet David declares that God can develop a stronghold or receive glory and praise from weak little ones such as him. 
Jesus actually quoted this part of Psalm 8. Let's take a look at what he says about it, because I think through it we're going to get a better understanding of what David is trying to say. So hold your fingers in Psalm 8 and go ahead and turn over to Matthew 21. And let me just give you a little bit of background of what's going on here. So as Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem, he instructs them to go into a certain village and they're going to find a donkey tied there and they're to bring it to him. This took place to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah declared hundreds of years prior to that Israel's future king would arrive in Jerusalem riding a donkey. A humble mode of transportation for an arriving king. And if you remember Sam's message on this, he compared it to the beast, the vehicle for the president of the United States, versus a used minivan. So in essence, in our day, Jesus would be driving in on a used minivan. I thought that was a good analogy since I, we've had three minivans in our 33 years of marriage. At Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the crowds went ahead of him, waving palm branches and laying them on his path, shouting, Hosanna. While appearing triumphant, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, enters the city of Jerusalem on a humble donkey to be crowned as king, a coronation that would come with a crown of thorns, mockery, ridicule, persecution, and death, peculiar majesty. Jesus immediately goes to the temple and finds a place of meeting for God and his people in shambles. The religious leaders had turned the sacrificial system into an opportunity for profit. They exploited the poor by charging them extortionate amounts of money for animals that they could use for sacrifice. And if the poor didn't pay, then they couldn't enter the sanctuary to meet with their God. That's why when Jesus saw this, he described it as a den of thieves. And so Jesus, if you remember, angrily clears the temple. And in Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16, it says this, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priest and the scribe saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You prepared praise for the mouths of infants and nursing babies. This is actually a picture of the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Not only had the chief priests and scribes more than likely known Psalm 8, they probably had it memorized. So they not only knew what Jesus just said, they probably likely remembered the next line on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and avenger. This had to sting them. Jesus was referring to them as enemies of God. Jesus, in a sense, indicts them. If you truly knew the Psalms as you claim and read it with open hearts, you would know and understand who I am and why I have come. Even these little children who are praising me can see and understand. The chief priests and scribes, Jesus' enemies, they're silenced. In that moment, they have nothing to say. Jesus departs from them. The mighty God, whose glory is displayed across the face of the heavens, appoints and evokes the praise of weak, dependent little children to silence the dark powers arrayed against him. This is the theme that runs through the scriptures as seen in Jesus and in us. Majesty through weakness, greatness through lowliness, leadership through service, victory through humility. It's seen in the incarnation. It's seen in the condescension of Jesus Christ and in those he calls. 
And the Apostle Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, powerful, of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is insignificant and despised in this world and viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. This, once again, is peculiar majesty. God desires not the strong, the proud, the self-sufficient, the climbers and achievers of the world, but the weak, the humble, the dependent humans of the world to be his royal partners. This is unexpected and wonderful news to those who understand their, their need for God. But it's offensive to those who want to rule and control their own lives apart from God. Throughout the Bible in our world today, we see people who are violently opposed to the rule of God in their lives and in our world. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse because we increasingly have a, a country and a culture that has abandoned God. But our God establishes a protective stronghold whenever one of his children recognizes their need and humility calls out to him through praise and prayer. In our weakness, humility, and need, we too can experience victory over the enemies of God in our lives. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our stronghold. Let's move on in verse 3 of Psalm 8. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place. And I think that it's as if David, as he was penning these words, was speaking out of a present experience. Perhaps he is standing under a bright, clear sky when the vast heavenly lights are stretching from horizon to horizon. In that moment, erased from his minds are the thoughts and worries of everyday life. As he stares at the heavens, he is both moved by the wonders of God's glorious creation and man's place in it. Have you ever had that experience? of being awestruck by God's creation where it seems in that moment all the pressures and concerns and worries and stresses of life kind of fade away. Maybe it was camping under a star-filled sky or where the moon was so huge that you felt like you'd reach out and touch it. Maybe your first experience was of the Grand Canyon and its expansive majesty or the redwood forest looking up and pondering how could a tree ever get so close to the heavens. Maybe it was standing on a beach, staring out at an endless ocean, so huge you could not see where it started or ended. Or maybe you stood in awe as you watched the sun rise or set over the ocean. Maybe it was while you were snorkeling and were surrounded by the creatures of the sea, big and small, of all shapes and sizes and various brilliant colors and design. One of these experiences for me was hiking in the Smoky Mountains in the fall at the peak time of the tree's colors. And I remember just standing there in the midst of the mountains and looking out over the expanse of the mountains and the hills and seeing, it just looked like an artist's um, canvas. It was so beautiful and awesome. And it's in those times when my heart is moved to wonder and awe of my God. I don't know about you, but in these moments as I stand in awe and wonder, I can't help but think in part, how incredible it is that all of it came about from one single-cell organism in a primordial soup. Right? No way. 
I stand in amazement at how incredible and amazing and powerful and wise and good and magnificent my God is. I stand in awe and wonder of the greatness of our God. Amen? Amen. How could anyone think that all of that stuff that we get the opportunity to behold could come about by chance? This is what I believe David is experiencing as he penned these words. And he identifies what he has seen by the phrase, the work of your fingers. And I love this because it is a poetic phrase speaking of God's personal heart and involvement in creation as the potter and the artist, as if he was used his fingers to mold and shape and create something wonderful and beautiful, something that he imagined in his mind to be special, something that would reflect his glory and yet also his goodness, his love and desire for you and me. God made this planet as a special gift to be inhabited by the apple of his eye and the objects of his affection. And there's no other planet that's been found in the entire universe. It reminded me of the the Goldilocks principle that scientists have coined. And it was based on the fairy tale, you know, of Goldilocks and the three bears and the mama bear and the papa bear and the baby bear and they're all eating Goldilocks porridge and it was an issue of not being not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And that's why they've identified our planet as the Goldilocks principle. Because there's 15 factors that they identified that have to be all true at the same time for this planet to be inhabitable, for it to be able to sustain life. It has to be just the right distance from the sun so that it's not too hot to burn things up and not too cold for everything to freeze. It has to have just that distance from the sun as well so that liquid water would exist, which is important for sustaining life. It's had to have just the right amount of water, which our planet is actually made up of, like 75-78% water. It had to have a crust that was made just uh, so that most of the planets are gaseous and they they wouldn't be able to sustain life, but ours had to have just a crusty core in order for life to exist. The moon had to be, be there uh, the, the, the planet uh, Jupiter had to be right there, so it had to, it's the one that blocks all the asteroids and comets and things from hitting the Earth. It had to have just the right atmosphere, an, an ozone layer to protect from radiation. There's 15 factors that are all involved to make life sustainable on this planet. Scientists recently have studied it, who have studied it for years, declare it's as if the planet knew we were coming. Of course it did. It's right there in Genesis 1. God creates this perfect planet for sustained life, and then what does he do? He makes man and woman and sets them there. Genesis tells us the story. They didn't have to study this for years. Just open up your Bible and read Genesis 1. It's all there. He knew exactly what he was making and who he was making it for. Today, through technology, we have such an advantage over David, especially with what the Hubble telescope has revealed. Scientists say that the universe is estimated to have at least 100 billion galaxies. And each galaxy has a billion of stars and planets and suns of their own. Our Milky Way galaxy, comparatively speaking, is just one ordinary galaxy among many and it nowhere near existing at the center of it all. I remember watching a video that began by showing the immensity of our planet Earth 
uh, from the moon and how large it was. And then the telescope continued to pull back where it looked as if it was the size of maybe a marble. And then it pulled back some more and it was the size of a dot. Then it pulled back some more and it was a speck still in the Milky Way galaxy. Then it pushed out further to see that the Milky Way galaxy in the midst of other galaxies first was the size of maybe a baseball. Then it pulled back some more and the galaxy was the size of a marble. Then it pulled back some more and it was the size of a speck. Then it pushed out even further to where hundreds of galaxies could be seen and the Milky Way galaxy was no longer detectable. I love what David wrote about this in Psalm 19. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words where their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. What is David telling us? He's saying that God's creation is speaking to every human being every single day and night that that person exists. That he is powerful and wise, that he is great and he is good. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he's made, so that human beings are without excuse. Paul's not declaring there that a person can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ through watching the creation, but what he says is that there is so much evidence of God's qualities and power in nature just in the creation that you at the very least could know that God exists if you wanted to look at things with an open heart and an open mind. Paul is saying the world around us, the planet Earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the heavenly planets and galaxies prove that there is a God. No one has an excuse in why they would choose to be an atheist. The evidence for God is clearly seen if you would just look around with an open heart. You would see there is a God who loves you dearly and wants to have a relationship with you. The advances in our technology and what has been revealed about the universe that God has made should cause each of us to feel small and insignificant. I mean, if our galaxy as it sits in the universe appears to be an insignificant speck, then, then what are we? And this is how David responded in verse 4 of Psalm 8. What is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? Upon reflecting on the glory and greatness and excellence of God as demonstrated in his creation, David wonders, why would God care anything about human beings? The true understanding of the greatness of God will always lead to the smallness, smallness and insignificance of humanity. So how do we know God remembers us? How do we know that God looks after us? How do we know that he's given us importance and value and worth in this immense universe and a place in his overall plan? Well, David speaks of this in the following verses, verses 5 through 8. He says, you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. The scriptures declare that every human being has been made in his image, 
and has been given glory and honor. The only creature made by God to be in a love relationship with Him. Do you want to see God's glory? Sure, look up. But also look at the person sitting next to you. Look at the people in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the restaurant where you eat, in the store where you shop, in the fitness center where you work out. Every person you run into has been given glory and honor by God. And when you realize it, when you truly realize it, then racism is detestable to you. And homophobia becomes unacceptable to you. And sexism and bigotry are disgusting to you. And abortion is abhorrent. The mistreatment of immigrants, injustice of every kind, now becomes intolerant to you. Embracing this truth in your heart that every person has been given glory and honor by God can change the way you view people, treat people, and the way that you live. But do you really want to see the glory of God on display? Then look in the mirror. The devil wants you to see your warts and imperfections, your failures, your mistakes, regrets, and stupid choices. God sees every one of them. And yet to him, in his heart of hearts, he sees you as his work of art, his beautiful masterpiece, who is crowned with glory and honor. This isn't some Christian cliche that your pastor is trying to pass on to you to lift you up. This is what God says about you. Stop believing in the lies of the enemy. Then David reveals another aspect of this glory and honor given to humanity. You have been made a ruler over all he has made. David obviously understood the mandate that was given to Adam and Eve in, in the garden. To be his representative rulers over all he has made, to have dominion and authority that was delegated by God to them. Before the Father, dominion over the planet was absolute. It was perfect and unhindered. Even to the point where Adam was given the responsibility to name the animals. Have you ever thought about that? It's like, how'd you come up with hippopotamus? Or aardvark? Or skunk? You know, I want to talk to him about that when I get to heaven. This dominion was severely hindered, though, by the fall. And the resultant consequences of sin and the curse. Humanity's dominion became tarnished by greed and lust for power, control, and self-gratification. But God continued to confirm that mandate through Noah and his descendants after the flood, as seen in Genesis 9. He carried it on even further through Moses to the nation of Israel, as God shared with them laws to govern the creatures in the land wisely. Even though this mandate continues for sinful man today to be stewards of the planet, it still is often hindered by greed and the lust for power and selfish gain to misuse and abuse the creatures and resources given to us by God that we are mandated to manage well. Listen, I've told you this before. I see overwhelming evidence in the scriptures for God, for Christians to be biblical environmentalists. As I said before, for Christians, this is not a political issue, but a biblical one. I'm not speaking of the one extreme to be worshipers of the planet, which many who call themselves environmentalists 
come. It's become a religion for them, and it's the worship of the planet in absence of worship of God. That's not what I'm talking about. Nor am I speaking of the other extreme where a person is ambivalent or exploits the planet through abuse or pollution or wasting of its resources. We're to live responsibly and to steward wisely and care genuinely about this world that God has given us to take care of because He cares about it. In such a way as to give God the glory in a way that is good for humanity and future generations. And we are to see this both as an honor and responsibility. If God cares deeply about His planet, then so should we. I'm going to close this morning. I began the message by telling you that all of Scripture from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 in one way or another points us to Jesus. And that day we were going to see this also in Psalm 8. It's nestled in the phrase, has crowned him with glory and honor. To land the message this morning, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, we're going to read verses 6 through 9. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. What an incredible passage. In creation, there was nothing that God did not place under humanity's feet to rule and steward well. They made, he made humans a little lower than God himself. In glory and honor, we were given dominion over all of God's creation. But at the present time, because of sin and the resultant curse, we see wickedness. We see disease, decay, and death. We see fallen man exploiting people, creatures, and the planet for selfish gain. While at this present time, we do not clearly see the glory and honor of man as rulers of the planet, we do see clearly the glory and honor of one who's identified here as lower than the angels for a short time. We see Jesus. It doesn't say, as it does in Psalm 8, lower than God, for he was, is, and always fully God. This passage speaks of Jesus' incarnation, his condescension to take on human flesh and carry the sins of the world upon himself. This is why the writer states Jesus, in leaving heaven and taking on human flesh, was made a little lower than the angels for a while. Jesus' life as he lived on earth revealed some of the dominion we had lost. As we see in the Gospels that even the winds and the waves obeyed him. And by him tasting death for everyone and rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, he was crowned with glory and honor. Given the name that is above every other name. Given all power and authority in both heaven and earth. Jesus has shared with us his authority and power and thus has won back some of that dominion for us. A dominion that we will once again see fully realized upon his return, where he abolishes the curse, removes once and for all disease, decay, and death, where creation will be forever relieved of its growing frustration, when his enemies will be forever silenced and cast out forever, 
where his redeemed will be clothed with glorious new bodies to dwell with him forever, where the Father's original intentions for creation will be renewed and restored to sinless perfection, where humanity will once again be given authority and responsibility to rule and steward his creation as the devoted subjects of Jesus the King. The name given to men by which we must be saved, Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. All things were made by him and for him, Jesus. The one who upholds all things by his powerful word, Jesus. Savior, Lord, King, and amazingly a friend of sinners, Jesus. The name that is above all names, Jesus. The name by which every knee shall bow, Jesus. The majestic, magnificent, glorious Jesus. Amen? Thus we lift our voices in praise, declaring with David to close out Psalm 8, verse 9, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. We're going to go ahead and have a little prayer ministry time here. And I thought it would be kind of cool to have the participation of the body of Christ. And so I just want to invite anybody who wants to come up to take the handheld microphone and ultimately uh, offer up a, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to the glorious, magnificent, majestic, wonderful Jesus, our Savior, our King, and our Lord. So don't be shy. Come on up and share with us your prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And then Sam will come up to close with uh, communion and a benediction.